In light of everything that is happening with the coronavirus, I thought it would be a great time to speak with Dr. Rob Verkirk. He's the founder, executive and scientific director of the Alliance for Natural Health International and is staying up to date with the latest science on the transmission, prevention and treatment of COVID-19. So, without further ado, Rob, welcome to the show. Ben, fantastic to be on the show again at a very strange time in our history. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show and to talk about a very pressing topic, the coronavirus. So I just want to start us off by saying, let's start by saying that the coronavirus 2019 or COVID-19 is the disease caused by the virus, severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2 or SARS-CoV-2, because this seems to get people confused all the time. Now, you've written about this extensively for ANHI. Um, how do you feel the global response has been to the new virus thus far? Well, you know, I, I've, I've opened up, as I do um, several times each day, the Johns Hopkins um, Coronavirus Resource Center to keep an eye on. It is one of the most accurate ways of plotting where we are in terms of either cumulative confirmed cases, but What's really interesting to me is the active cases. And the one thing I would say, if you go onto the website, onto the tracker, do not do what the media keep doing, which is dividing the total number of deaths into the total confirmed cases and assuming then you'll get a figure currently of about 4.5% um, that you have a 4.5% risk of getting it because it doesn't work like that, first of all. There are the, the confirmed, the total confirmed case are, are really a mixture of lab confirmed cases and, and in other parts of the world, in some parts of the world, they are lab confirmed plus also doctor diagnosed cases. But obviously they do not include the probably very large numbers of cases that are either unknown or are asymptomatic. So that denominator, the big number that you divide the total number of deaths into that would give us a true um, fatality rate, not a case fatality rate, but a total fatality rate, um, is is now misleading um, and, and obviously will be much lower than the 4.5% figure that you get by dividing those two numbers. And um, Neil Ferguson, Imperial College London, who's one of the key advisors, is, has been fairly consistent about a probable figure given all the estimates of more like somewhere between you know 0.1 and 0.5 that's probably a more realistic percentage but it's certainly very very concerning when you look at the rapid change in active cases in some parts of the world and in particular in the United States of America so mm -hmm. You know, Donald Trump suggesting that um, by Easter he wants to have everyone back in business is probably something of a pipe dream, particularly given that now that we really understand much better the mechanism of viral entry into the human body via the respiratory epithelial cells using the ACE2 binding sites um, so that the, the, the virus can then come in and then hijack the um, RNA replication machinery of the host, of the human host, um, and then start chunking out large numbers of, of viruses only to increase the viral load and create a problem. Now, if our immune system can't get on top of that um, because you essentially have overloaded it because too much virus has come in, then you're going to have much more severe respiratory disease. Now, we know that older people... We know that people with underlying conditions such as heart disease and type 2 diabetes, particularly um, people with metabolic syndrome, are going to be high ACE2 expressors. Yes, so and I want to really... come on to that in a second, but just to give like people the wider picture, because a lot of people, I'm going to refer to a point that you've just made earlier, because a lot of people are really worried and um, they have a lot of anxiety about this. And some people have been comparing this uh virus as it like a bad flu or just the flu and others suggesting that it's much worse and your point of like um how many people will get the coronavirus but also the 
fatality rate. I think it's a really important point. We only know from the cases which have been diagnosed because a lot of people that might have symptoms have just been told to wait and stay at home and isolate themselves, but they're not being considered in this kind of wider number that you were talking about, which I imagine is going to be hugely significant especially how when we have the antibody tests to understand who's come into contact with the coronavirus in the first place yeah the the antibody test will be a game changer because it will particularly for the economy because essentially we've got to recognize that there is a, a joined up intergovernmental approach where essentially um the democratic process has been shelved so you know parliaments are not involved in this this is governments and intergovernmental organizations like WHO um, deciding what to do. And of course, fascinatingly, the WHO had already mapped out a scenario that's more or less identical to this in its 2016 um, disease X scenario, you know, a pandemic that would have high transmission rate. Um, and, and Ben, as you know, my, my son is a surgeon, an ENT surgeon, at Guy's and St. Thomas's, and he has had um, coronavirus a couple of weeks ago. And he, like many others, has experienced one of the side effects um, that many people are experiencing, even those who are otherwise asymptomatic, which is the loss of sense of smell and taste, anosmia. And that can be a very sensitive indicator. It's also a big problem if you really love your food and you also understand that food is medicine. And in order to maintain a really healthy immune system, the best thing you can do is eat lots of fresh, healthy food. Absolutely. And you were talking about um, the viral load before, and I've just written that down <laughs> in terms of, because it, I, th- I think it seemed to be or something which has been indicated, but I haven't had the time to look into it, that doctors are experiencing a much greater viral load than a lot of other individuals as well. And it might be the case that because of this, um, the virus is affecting these doctors at a much younger age rather than those who are in the community, which have less of a viral <laughs> load where the age seems to be much greater. Correct. The, 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 the bottom line is when you look at the um, chemical, the biochemical and physical barriers of the body that are related to the initial part of the innate immune system, then the innate immune system itself, and then the big guns of the adaptive immune system, what we need to do in order to get on top of this virus is make sure either the viruses do not get a foothold at all, so they are basically, they, they're unable to bind successfully um, at the, um, on, on the, um, the cells that line the epidermal cells that line the, the airways, both in the um, nose and the mouth. Um, but, but obviously, if you do have a significant load there, it's much easier to overwhelm the innate immune response. Mm-hmm. So even with... Um, natural killer cells and macrophages throwing everything they've got at it if the load is very heavy and the viruses start to um, take over the 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 cell rna um, replication machinery um, and start producing new viruses that may be too much and of course one of the reasons why the adaptive system can respond so heavily with with um a cytokine storm it is that cytokine storm that gives you many of the symptoms of severe respiratory disease mm-hmm. and in fact in the most severe cases is actually what kills you it is the immune response is an over response from the immune system and you know when you look at this from a sort of evolutionary point of view it's it's pretty interesting as as horrendous as it is in this early stage because you know we we have um, we, we have over 200 uh, viruses that are known to infect human beings. And this is one that has just found its way into our species at this particular time. Um, three months ago, very few of us were concerned about coronaviruses. We'd seen SARS, we'd seen MERS. Um, uh, we have forgotten about the fact that 20% of all common colds are caused by a coronavirus. Mm-hmm. But what we have here is is a new virus that has um, what we think is um, a fatality rate that's considerably lower than SARS or MERS, 
um, but it has much higher transmissibility, which is the reason why it's moving around the globe so quickly. And it is probably the fact that there are so many um, asymptomatic carriers or people who do not have unknown disease who are just carrying the disease um, together with a highly variable incubation period. Um, you may have seen some of the papers, um, you know, while the mean, everyone is agreeing with a mean incubation period of around five days, um, what's interesting to me is the extreme range. So we're seeing anything between one day, as one paper is showing a 24-day incubation. So yes, it can be very, that. yeah, very, very variable. Yeah, and yet the recommendations, I think, are just to stay at home for seven days. Isn't that right? If you experience symptoms, so how does it? It does. It's a it's a practical. Um, you know, it's it's based around the mean of five days. Mm -hmm. um, my my son was surprised as well that um, you know the NHS wanted him back on the front lines um, as quickly as they did. But of course, the the difference with with doctors is that they. Um, understanding more about the um, virus itself, they are less likely to infect others yes. because they are in, involved in regular hygiene and sanitation practices. Um, the, the risk is more the other way around to them. And I think they are, um, you know, doctors, nurses, paramedics, everyone who's a frontline um, healthcare worker is absolutely justified to... Um, suggest that the PPE arrangements um, are are very very inadequate at the moment. Still, absolutely. And, and let's not jump over it. How is your son right now? He's look. He's recovered fully, with the exception of anosmia. Right. Um, yeah. And and because he works in that area, he's also well aware of the fact that um, if you look at some viruses, RSV, for example. Um, there are cases where anosmia is permanent. Wow. Okay. Um, in, in other cases, it might be um, weeks, it may be months, but it could be years and it could even be permanent. So um, it's, it's, it's not to be an excuse the pun sniff net. <laughs> You've been working on that, haven't you? Do you know I haven't? It just, it just <laughs> came, it came really naturally. I've not used that one before. Okay. No. I'm pocketing that one as well. I'm definitely pocketing <laughs> that. Um, <laughs> but um, what was I going to say? I was out last night. I think what your son's doing and everyone on the front line on the NHS is hugely commendable. And I was out last night at 8pm, along with the rest of my family in Manchester, clapping to support the NHS. So, yeah. Well, look, the the, the other side of it, I, I, I've literally just come off a podcast with, with um, the um, magazine New Food that I'm on the scientific board, advisory board for. Um, and um, basically, we were, we were looking at impacts on the um, food supply system linked to coronavirus. Um, and, you know, one of the real concerns here is that um, while it is greatly recognized that the medical community uh, are absolutely essential to this, the key workers um, getting... Um, obviously special privileges through this very, very difficult time. Sometimes we don't think enough about the people in the entire food supply chain. And one of the real concerns that many of us have is that when you look at the fact that the UK is, is, is very, very dependent on imports of food, from um, particularly from Spain and France, the fact that both those countries are going through very serious uh, impacts and lockdowns linked to coronavirus means that as we move forward, we're likely to see um, significant reduction in imports. Um, and we're seeing this at a time before the UK um, agriculture has really ramped up for the much more um, productive um, summer period. So we really need to be thinking long and hard about um, um, what we uh, are going to expect in the food supply chain as we move forward. And we really should be giving um, a huge amount of support to everyone involved in the food supply chain. Without food, none of us can survive. And food 
um, as you know, Ben, is information and is critically important for the immune system. And we want to develop people who are more immune competent. They need to be eating diverse, healthy diets, particularly fresh foods. And right now, it's a, it's, it's, it's a major concern that people are still t- tending to buy um, processed packaged foods that have a longer shelf life and are just walking straight past the, the fresh food that supermarkets are already having to give to pigs and dispose of because people aren't buying it. If you just walk into just a supermarket right now, the pasture aisles are almost decimated. And, you know, I'm not saying pasta is the absolute devil's food, anything like that. I don't like to label foods as good as bad. I think some foods are certainly much, much better than others in terms of the information they can provide in nutrient density. But I think it's key that people should know that if you have a vitamin or mineral deficiency over time, that is going to affect your immune system and your resistance to these kinds of infections. Yes, and I, I think that needs to be seen in the context of what nutrients the average person is likely to be deficient in. And we've got very good data. The, the UK's NDNS surveys, the National Diet and Nutrition Surveys, are probably the most robust nutritional surveys conducted anywhere in the world. And we know that even when you look at um, sufficiency or adequacy via the RNI, the reference nutrient intake, or the LRNI, which is the lowest reference nutrient intake, um, we see really significant numbers of people being deficient in vitamin D, vitamin A, um, zinc, and magnesium, um, as well as selenium. Now, um, these are all nutrients that are of key importance, both for the innate and the adaptive immune system. And... um, and it's really important that people, either through diet or through supplements, actually correct those deficiencies. And when they start to eat less fresh foods, they're likely to become even more deficient. So there's a lot that people can do to help um, maintain the, the function of their immune system. And just eating like a variety of fruits and vegetables as well, because the fresh food is still available. Like it's still available there for people to eat, even if they have cans and things like that they don't need to use those they can still go out and buy the fresh food and i think that still needs to be emphasized now ben uh, the the one of the things that is going on is that people are concerned that fresh foods are more exposed and they believe that there is a risk of viral transmission via the fresh food whereas Mm -hmm. they feel if they buy something in a packet or a tin it's going to not be contaminated now really important to dispel that misunderstanding. This virus cannot be transmitted through food. It can, however, be transmitted on food packaging. And the, the, you know, the hard surface around a tin or a cardboard box or a, um, a plastic bag containing pasta has exactly the same amount of risk as the, um, you know, the paper bag that contains your broccoli, for example. The, the, the important thing, and, and perhaps the government hasn't been clear enough in helping people to understand the hygiene practices in the home, but it's really important to create a very sort of clear delineation between the outside of packaging and then the food that you're going to eat. This applies also to, there's a lot of people who are now eating takeaways because restaurants are converting to takeaways to try and stay in, in business. So when a takeaway package is is delivered, we have to think of anything that's coming into our homes as potentially contaminated with virions, with with virus particles. Um, So when you make contact with that, you then need to wash your hands before you, um, uh, in order to reduce the viral load, but you will then go into the bag to take um, further packaging out, which may itself be contaminated. Now, When it comes to eating that, don't dive in with your fingers. Mm -hmm. Use, you know, utensils to make contact with the food. And another really important aspect of viral transmission is the virus doesn't just jump off the packaging or the food into your body. The virus needs to make contact with the mucous membranes of your nose, of your mouth, of your eyes. So it is this particular behavior that many of us engage in which is 
touching the face, touching our mouths, touching our noses, rubbing our noses, rubbing our eyes. That is a major reason why transmission is going on. Obviously, the other primary mechanism is is through droplet inhalation. Um, and, um, And obviously, if people are coughing or sneezing, they can create these aerosol droplets that can be suspended in the air for for minutes, possibly um, even hours in some conditions, um, and uh, and that's you know one of the reasons that we've got um, this level of of social distancing and and lockdown going on because even if you've got a two meter separation from someone, they could still cough or sneeze, create aerosols that you inhale three, four, five meters away very easily. So when it comes to food, please understand that the food itself will not give you um, coronavirus, will not give you um, COVID-19, um, but you have to be careful how you handle that food and, and then use um, utensils to handle the food itself um, or make sure that if you're moving between packaging and fresh food, you have rolled it out of the container onto your chopping board, you then wash your hands, and then handle knives and, and, and the food itself and everything else, having already disinfected yourself of potential virus. Absolutely. And there's a lot of information on how to wash your hands and the right technique and things like that on the NHS website, which I'll link below as well. Um, something that you mentioned at the start of this podcast, Rob, which I just want to revert back to, is um, health conditions that people have already, underlying health conditions that may predispose people to a more severe form of this disease Um, and some of them are heart conditions hypertension diabetes and I should note that just because you have these conditions doesn't mean that you're going to get the the symptoms of coronavirus it doesn't mean that you're going to get it it just means that you're predisposed you have a higher risk potentially of a severe form and i want to know from you rob is is there any real reason why um these kind of conditions would put people at a greater risk the 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 biggest single reason that that is um fairly consistently being discussed in the literature is is the fact that the um ace2 uh um, mechanism is used for viral binding in the respiratory epithelium so um, if you have um, high ACE2 expression, you are more likely to um, have the virus actually enter the epithelial cells and start to s- start their replication there. Um, the very interesting thing about it as well is that if you're on, uh, if you have heart disease um, or hypertension or heart failure, you, you may well be on ACE inhibitors. So what we've seen also is um, a high frequency of people who have serious illness who are also on ACE inhibitors. Now, it's, it's probable that that is an interaction um, that is associated with both the drug and their condition. Um, and there is really a third factor, which is if you have a weakness in your lungs, bearing in mind that the, um, the alveoli, the tiny little sacs, in the um, lower part of the lungs um, that, uh, you know, really have, are, are the most susceptible to the virus. That's where the virus really wants to get to. It's where it really starts to um, replicate very rapidly. If you have a sensitivity um, and you've had a history of, of lung disease or pneumonia, um, you are more likely to suffer the, the adverse consequences of it. Um, I mean, that, that's the part of the lungs where, that are most important for, for gas exchange between um, oxygen and carbon dioxide. So if you are unable to function properly in the alveoli, um, you are less likely to be able to remove fluid uh, and you can get fluid buildup. And it's that fluid buildup that is um, linked to um, lower respiration and eventually organ failure in, in the worst cases. So... Um, you know, the, the, the really key thing is, is, again, trying to find ways that can um, either and ideally avoid exposure altogether, which is really what lockdown is all about, particularly for vulnerable people. And I think the, the element that people are beginning to now understand is that um, 
if you are in that group, you are a vulnerable person, um, you are very unlikely to actually contract the infection from someone who is deeply um, ill as a result of COVID-19. People who are very ill, have severe disease, are lying in bed or on their sofas. They're not running around um, giving um, COVID-19 to other people. So the primary risk is actually from people who are apparently healthy. And that's the, the tricky one to get your head around. Mm -hmm. But I think now that we're in lockdown, people are beginning to understand how it all works and, and why it is such a difficult um, illness, infectious disease to, to manage, except by such dire measures. Absolutely. I mean, I, mean, I, I still find it baffling that the, the kind of the most infectious people are the ones without without symptoms. Um, and I think it's, it is really hard for a lot of people to get their head around. And you mentioned ACE2 inhibitors just before. And just just to be clear, that's hypertensive medications primarily. Now, is that something which doctors are taking into account because of the virus or what's the current um, recommendations yeah, I, there? Doctors certainly are. Uh, essentially, if you are older and you have hypertension, you're very likely to be on ACE inhibitors. And, um, you know, as far as the medical community is concerned, those people are, have been very rapidly put in the at-risk group. It's, it's more understanding what we now know as of you know 10 days ago from a series of publications is that it is not just the um the hypertension itself that that is the problem it is also aggravated by the um the pharmaceutical medicines that that we use to to treat that hypertension that that aggravates the problem further Now, no one is suggesting that people come off ace inhibitors what is being suggested is is that those people are separated from other members of the community who may be at risk of infecting them. Right, that makes perfect sense in terms of countermeasures these people can take right now. Um, and just to come on to, to another point is like the immune system and how can we kind of make sure that we have a robust enough immune system so if we do come into contact with this virus that we're, we're in the best state in order to find it? Well, the, the, this is where, you know, we have to look at the resources. There's a huge amount of research that has been done looking at um, um, respiratory viruses, pathogenic viruses that create respiratory disease. Um, many of them have different binding sites. They, they, let's remember that viruses aren't whole organisms in their own right. They, mm -hmm. they require the use of the replication machinery of their host to be able to divide and multiply. Um, so they need to get into the cells, first of all. And um, we've seen these, these uh, protein spikes that occur, um, the, the shape of and form of the, um, the SARS-CoV-2 is now very familiar to everyone. Um, and, and these spike proteins uh, are able to recognize um, receptors and binding sites, mm -hmm. and and these binding sites then need to, um, uh, and, and and as we know, they're primarily these ACE2 sites, yes. and then we've got um, protease response from the uh, from the host as well, from our respiratory cells that allows the fusion process to occur, and once that fusion um, has occurred, um, the there's a there's a change actually in the respiratory epithelium, um, so um, w in which the the um, the epithelium then engulfs the virus particle, takes it into the cytoplasm, and then takes over the the um, the replication machinery to to start producing so, so, you know obviously more more viruses that are then expelled. Now, if that starts happening in um, for example, your nose or your mouth, the replication continues um, until we see um, more and more of these viruses being produced, and then they start to work their way down. You've noticed, um, perhaps with bacterial or other viral infections, you can feel a tickle in the back of your throat, yes. and you can feel it literally moving down your throat. This is precisely what happens um, with this coronavirus. 
until it, it works its way down into the alveoli. Now, obviously, the, the other way is to inhale it directly um, deep into the lungs, um, and the virus gets a, a free journey directly to the alveoli where it particularly um, goes about its business. Now, the body doesn't take that line down. The body has had um, uh, eons to develop very sophisticated systems um, for dealing with, with uh, pathogens. And the, from an evolutionary biology point of view, what is actually interesting is that this relationship that is so uncomfortable for us right now will probably be seen as beneficial um, years ahead. Both the virus will have, have benefited from the human host, and believe it or not, we will benefit in the long term once we've got through this rather messy early reception phase for the virus when our antigen-antibody system is going into red alert and, and we see an over-response of the um, cell-mediated adaptive side of our immune system. So in order to make sure that your, um, uh, your innate immune system, your first line of defense against the virus, um, is working properly, um, let me say the first thing, hydration. Damp, damp mucous membranes um, will trap viruses better than dry mucous membranes and within those mucous membranes are particular chemicals that the viruses don't like in fact we still don't know with children seem to be multiple things going on that give children inherently less susceptibility to this virus and and when we understand that the innate immune system is about physical barriers biochemical barriers and then the white blood cell non-specific response that we see with neutrophils, natural killer cells, you know, dendritic cells, etc. Um, we've got to look at all the opportunities to maximize the effect there. So um, first of all, be well hydrated so you can trap more viruses. Obviously, try and avoid contact. We, you know, one of the things we're trying to get across to people, particularly with children, is just try and teach people to avoid touching their face. Um, tell them a, a horrendous story and see if they put their hands to their mouth and you can take a photograph of them and, and show them saying, look, are you keen on transmitting <laughs> coronavirus? Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we've got this, this reflex that causes us to, um, to shove our hands all over our faces. And that is the primary mechanism for transmission. So physical barriers, make sure they're working properly. The next line of, of defense, I've mentioned the, the, the white blood cells the non-specific white blood cells that, that do a key job. Now, these um, make up the majority of the white blood cells, the kind of pus that we get when we see infections. Um, and, you know, natural killer cells that are um, a significant proportion of these, nothing like the, the same number as the, the neutrophils, but they, they are very, very well set up to target viruses. So they tend to target viruses or virus-infected cells. Um, and what we know about natural killer cells is that they um, require a decent environment. Now, we've talked to a degree about food. We haven't yet talked about stress. And, you know, being in lockdown, uh, being exposed to the media 24-7 about all this, seeing people dying, seeing frontline workers put themselves at risk for the benefit of society 24-7 is a stressful situation to be in. On top of that, people have got economic stresses. Um, and as we're also discovering, the home is not necessarily a sanctuary for everyone. And um, there are certainly social scientists are suggesting they are going to be expecting a, a considerable spike in domestic violence as a result of it. So we have to be looking at the, the factors that affect, um, you know, NK cell, natural killer cell activity and good quality sleep and a lack of psychosocial stress are two really important factors to make sure um, your NK activity is as good as you can make it. So really focusing on not being around um, screens um, at least within an hour of going to bed um, making sure you're sleeping in complete darkness, 
um, so that your melatonin can can do its thing. Um, trying to get at least um, seven or eight hours of good quality sleep in pitch blackness um, is is really important. Um, remove the blue light uh, before you go to bed. It really does disturb um, sleep patterns. And um, you know, think of that as food for the for the immune system. Um, the um, the the other thing that, that that is really important in terms of the innate response is what nutrients are available now. Um, vitamin A and vitamin D are two critical nutrients. We're we're at the end of a northern winter when people are notoriously very very low in circulating hydroxy vitamin D, and um, taking a vitamin D supplement around about four thousand, maybe eight thousand, ten thousand. Um, international units a day is a really good idea because even though it's been quite sunny of late as it happens you would need to um, sit with 80% of your body area in full sun for at least two or three hours to be able to produce a um, significant increase in the amount of circulating vitamin D in your system at this time of year it will change as we move um, towards June but um, so taking vitamin D as a supplement um, is is pretty crucial. It, interestingly, so many people are doing that. Um, many suppliers have actually run out of stock. And vitamin A is another key nutrient. Now, obviously, we can consume colored fruits and vegetables that are very rich in carotenoids. Some of those carotenoids, such as beta carotene, um, can be converted by the body to vitamin A. The um, the, the amount of uh, conversion is very variable from one individual to another and also depends on the food matrix that you're eating at that time. And it may be a six-fold to a 24-fold loss during conversion. Mm-hmm. So um, taking a, a preformed vitamin A supplement around about 2,500 micrograms per day is a great thing to do to be able to prime particularly the innate immune system um as another word of advice sorry rob as that's a so, fat soluble vitamin could we um get that from food i know like liver is an extremely potent yes, source of vitamin a exactly you can get it from food um um what what liver is is without doubt the the uh, richest source by a long shot and, that, and that's you know any liver including cod liver so if you're taking cod liver off um what one of the issues we're seeing is that very few people are now eating organ meats, and obviously we have um, an unprecedented there's the there's that word again an unprecedented <laughs> number of vegans um, in our midst, and um, and and they obviously uh, are not prepared to eat um, any animal product. So um, finding a way of getting preformed vitamin A into the body is pretty crucial. They, they are also interesting, vitamin A and vitamin D are antagonistic. So it's ideal not to take them at the same time. Being fat soluble, you can also t- take them um, either at different times of the, d- the day, for example, in the morning or the evening, um, or even on consecutive days. Because, um, you know, taking slightly higher doses every other day of alternate um, fat-soluble vitamins um, does uh, equate to still um, a similar way of, of, of optimizing your, your circulating levels. So those are two really important nutrients. Um, when, you, when you look at, the, um, at, at some of the other nutrients that we're very deficient in, if we're going to um, really look at um, key players, B-complex vitamins, really important, B2, B6, B12 um, and folate. Um, you know, these are very much tied up in one carbon metabolism, building new cells. The immune system is really the um, one of the single biggest users of um, our cell-making apparatus in, in the human body. So um, between that and, and our gut lining, um, we have a huge demand on new cells, if we become infected, that demand rises dramatically. So it's really good to have good status so that your body can ramp up 
production of white blood cells and um, T cells and B cells um, from the adaptive immune system um, as quickly as possible. Um, another couple of minerals, or if I can squeeze in three minerals that are really crucial because we're often low in them, are magnesium that we require for better absorption and function of vitamin D, um, zinc, Let's really just crucial. stop on the magnesium one for a second because there's so many different yeah. sources and a lot of people have been complaining that I know that I've read this information already of bowel disturbances. Now, in terms of a source, is it glycinate is one of the best sources in terms of absorption or how do people navigate that field? Yes. Well, the interesting thing is that if you look at the nutrient reference value, the RDA, the recommended daily allowance, the, you know, the, the EU um RDA NRV is set at 375 milligrams per day. If you take that as magnesium oxide in a single dose, most people will get a bowel disturbance. It will create an osmotic change in the in the, in the gut, and um, you will have a very loose stool, and that will um, um, impact. Particularly if you're doing that around food, your ability to assimilate nutrients from your food. So. Um, it's better to use a form of magnesium that's going to be less likely to create those problems. So oxide and sulfate are the two um, forms that are most likely to cause that effect. Um, magnesium citrate is one of the most useful forms, and, um, and, and glycinate is also very good. The um, uh, amino acid chelated forms um, lysinate, glycinate are, are, are great as well. The, the key is that we have very different tolerances for it. And it's a little bit like vitamin C, that if you can take divided doses, we would suggest to most people, if you want to consume, say, 400 milligrams or even 600 milligrams in a day, try and take three lots of 200 milligrams, even of citrate or glycinate. Um, it also allows the body to, um, what we call the area under the curve, it allows the body to receive um, a, a higher intake at three di different intervals during the day. It's e easier for the body to be able to use it. Um, and, and also our bodies are very programmed to get higher levels of these nutrients when we eat. And obviously if we eat lots of leafy green vegetables, we can actually get ample magnesium into our body. The problem we have is is um, not enough people are doing that, and we're also going to be likely moving into a situation, despite the fact that our supermarkets are currently full of fresh food, with the pressure on many of the um, countries and the farmers who are producing these foods, we could see real food supply problems. So it is useful to think about supplementation routes as well excellent and then you mentioned uh, the other two i think one of them was zinc Z zinc and selenium so if we lived in north america um we would probably um on average have as as americans do ample selenium status because most of the selenium is coming uh out of the soil into grain-based foods um Obviously, there's a, an issue if you're not eating grain-based foods. Um, the European and UK soils are naturally very deficient in selenium. Right. Um, selenium is one of those minerals that has um, a very sharp dose response in relation to toxicity. So, um, you know, while 55 um, micrograms is the um, typical um, uh, NRV, um, many of us will benefit from 100 micrograms a day, but um, 300 or 600 micrograms can actually be toxic, particularly if taken in the in the basic salt form. So it's um, pretty critical with many of these nutrients not to overdose on them and to take the kind of dosages that um, are associated with, with a healthy diet unless you have specific recommendations from a healthcare practitioner. You know, for, for some cancers, for example, 600 micrograms a day um, has been shown to be very beneficial. But if you're just looking at priming the immune response, around about 100 micrograms is ideal. Now, you can consume for selenium, you can consume um, Brazil nuts. Uh, a typical Brazil nut varies 
in its content, but maybe somewhere between um, 50 and 80 micrograms per Brazil nut. So you can actually take a, a handful of Brazil nuts every day. And ironically, and we still don't really fully understand why this is the case, there has never been a case of any toxicity associated with selenium from Brazil nuts, even though people must have been taking very large doses that are well above the um, the threshold that we know creates toxicity when it's taken in supplemental form, such as sodium selenite or potassium selenite. Um, so selenium, really important. And, and zinc, which is one of my favorite minerals, um, and it's partially because I, I've, I've known um, Professor Ananda Prasad um, for many years. He um, was the first scientist to um, discover this essentiality of zinc back in 1966. He is, like me, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, and he has been banging on for a very long time, for decades, saying that zinc insufficiency is the single reason why immune systems are so compromised, looking at the TB um, deaths, incidentally, the TB deaths that are in their millions every year um, massively outnumber the um, COVID-19 deaths. But um, that's another story for another time. Um, yeah. But um, zinc um, is the, the, one of the fundamental problems that we have with zinc is, is the way in which we now consume it. So from an evolutionary point of view, we have consumed it. Around about 300 enzymes are dependent on zinc in our body. So it's a very, very important mineral. Um, we used to get most of it from seafood and animal foods that were grass-raised, coming out of the soil, it's coming out of the ocean. Um, we now largely farm our fish inland, and most of the zinc has been lost from our agricultural soils. So most of the zinc we're now consuming is actually coming from fortified foods, often in the form of fairly simple salts like zinc sulfate that's added to breakfast cereals, um, uh, you know, and, and even in some cases bread, but breakfast cereals that have a sort of multivitamin complex um, are, are very important sources, as is the one-a-day multivitamin that around about 40, 50% of the population still consume. Now, when they consume those nutrients containing the zinc, they generally do it either because it's already in a cereal-based food or they have their multivitamin and a bowl of cereal or a slice of toast with it, with their breakfast. And the problem is the phytic acid, the phytate in the food complexes out the zinc. And when you start to measure circulating blood levels, you'll see that we have a major problem with insufficiency. So the UK NDNS surveys show we have a problem with zinc in significant proportions of the population just in terms of intake, but that is doubled, that the problem is doubled by the fact that um, on top of that, we're, we're, we're not getting good absorption because of the way in which we're eating our zinc. So um, the solution there is, is, you know, okay, you can eat... Um, ocean caught fish, line caught fish, sustainable sources, etc. You can um, go to, if you're lucky enough, there are probably, but usually we don't have the data, um, much less intensive farms that are, um, you know, rearing um, grass fed animals that probably are richer in zinc. Um, or you can take zinc in supplements. Now, the, if you're going to take them in supplements, um, don't take them in a multivitamin. Take them um, either as a lozenge. Zinc gluconate is a very soluble form of zinc that's available in lozenge form that you can suck. You get a lot of absorption also into the lymphatic system because you get a lot of sublingual delivery. And um, you can also take it as a liquid um, and take it between meals as a liquid as drops, often in water or another beverage that you can have between meals, the absorption then will be very, very good. Okay, fantastic. There's a lot of information there. Uh, other, other nutrients that without doubt are absolutely key to this and fascinating things that there are um, clinical trials ongoing both in the US and in China is, is vitamin C. So 
um, higher oral doses, uh, and we've got to distinguish between the doses required for prevention versus the doses required for treatment. Um, so for prevention, um, somewhere between one and three grams a day in divided doses of vitamin C um, is ideal. For treatment, and um, again, we would advise that this is um, guided by um, a nutrition um, practitioner or functional medicine practitioner, you, you may go considerably higher than that um, in divided doses short term. Um, but what's particularly interesting for um, people who have very severe respiratory illness is the use of um, IVC, intravenous vitamin C. Um, and we're seeing now the beginnings of short communications. Very interestingly, this crisis is such that um, many of the major journals have put aside the true uh, peer review process. So we're able to, on a daily basis, read papers as they're being pretty much coming off the printing press. And as the manuscripts get sent to the publisher, we can read them without any peer review. And it's giving crucial insights into what's working, what's not working, um, exactly how the virus works, etc. So, um, yes, we're beginning to see some very interesting um, results. We also have a number of colleagues who are directly involved in these trials. And um, I should suffice as saying that if I had severe respiratory illness, um, I would want to go on high-dose um, intravenous vitamin C. Um, yeah. I mean, absolutely key. There was um, the Shanghai Medical Association published a consensus paper um, on the comprehensive treatment of new coronavirus based on um, a study of 300 clinical patients developed by 30 experts. And the, the treatment involved high dose vitamin C, even for light infection for the virus. Um, and the dosage recommendations were around 50 to 100 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Now, guaranteed, this was under strict supervision, um, but even, and this is intravenous as well, and but they even stretched to 200 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day um, and saw fantastic results. But that was uh, extremely interesting. And it's just to see how this science is emerging very rapidly um, in light of this new coronavirus. Yeah, the, you know, the, the fascinating thing about, about uh, you know, most viruses is that they are very, very sensitive to acid. So one of the interesting things about vitamin C, human beings like our guinea pig friends don't produce vitamin C, but we need to take it orally in our diet. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it is one of the safest forms of acid that we can put into um, our body. So interestingly, we get almost a, a double effect from very high doses of intravenous vitamin C. We get a straight antiviral effect as well as an immune support effect. So it's really targeting the virus from two different angles. Yeah. No, it's, it's hugely interesting and something which I, I certainly think warrants further study and warrants further reading. Um, something as well, and I know we're, we're firing through this, Rob, but I'm conscious of your time in this, and it is a massive topic, but I'll, do, I'll just leave on this, um, this last big topic which is the idea that the the emerging treatment of hydroxychloroquine now um donald trump has been hugely uh, popular in the media right now i say popular but he's been hugely prominent in the media right now saying this could be a potential treatment in the pipeline um for the new coronavirus and the hydroxychloroquine is an anti-malarial drug um what is your take on this new, new drug and its mechanism of action well um, first of all, it, it isn't a new drug at yes, all. No, I mean, right, uh, uh, so yeah, it's it's a it's really comes under this general heading of um, repurposing um, old drugs. Um, I have seen a number of the papers that um, caused Donald Trump to become very excited, um, but I've also seen other papers um, that have put into context the side effects that were caused by the use of chloroquine and hydrochloroquine in the SARS and MERS um, outbreaks um, previously. So it's interesting for those of us who've got um, longer memories, there was a similar um, response that, oh my goodness, these two anti-malarials could play a, a key 
role. And, you know, there, there is no doubt that um, um, there is a, 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 a mechanism that's there that, that um, um, you know, suggests that um, chloroquine can have many um, interesting effects. It's been used as an anti-cancer drug. There's a number of papers showing that it can be useful um, for that purpose as well. The, the, the problem is when you look at the overall um, side effects that um, resulted from um, the use of chloroquine and hydrochloroquine um, in SARS and MERS, they are pretty considerable. And I, I think, you know, long term, particularly in, in people who are um, physiologically a little more sensitive, which is um, certainly one way of describing the more vulnerable populations, it could potentially be quite a dangerous thing to do. And when we um, have other, we've just been talking about vitamin C as a treatment agent more than as a prevention a agent. Um, for me, um, if if there was a choice of chloroquine or hydrochloroquine versus vitamin C, I'd go for vitamin C every time. The risk-benefit profile is is way more favorable than chloroquine. Okay. That, that makes perfect sense. And in terms of like that mechanism of action, though, it works completely different, differently to what vitamin C would. I believe it's a zinc ionophore, meaning that it allows zinc into the cell and step, stops the replication of the viral. Uh... Cor cor correct. Yeah, um, yeah it, it is exactly that. And, and you know, there have been um, quite a few studies looking at zinc, zinc and copper um, are both um, really crucial for the immune system. And um, and there's also been studies where where um, there has been um, the use of zinc and copper as um, adjuvants to chloroquine that that have shown um, positive results. Um, certainly in experimental models, um, limited clinical uh, trials. Um, you know, I, I think that the problem is we don't have enough data um, on the use of these for. Um, for example, a typical um, American patient that, and, and, and I'm pretty convinced that that's where we're going to see the primary burden of, of this disease in the coming weeks and months. Um, so, and we do have vitamin C. Vitamin C is cheap to produce. I know chloroquine in particular is also cheap for a pharmaceutical, um, but um, why not work directly with something that the body is used to dealing with rather than have um, if you like, a new-to-nature agent that does have significant side effects. And lastly, I'll, I'll leave it on two questions, Rob. We've covered like a huge, huge topic here very, very rapidly, even though it's taken an hour anyway. Um, so what do you believe is the most important health change um, that you have made during this time and that people should make now? Well, there's no doubt the biggest single health change is... is um, is social isolation, social distancing. It's, it's a dramatic health change, and it's one that we have never, as a um, global society, enacted for the purposes of trying to um, extract a, a medical benefit in the knowledge that the social and economic consequences that in turn have um, potential very severe health and mental health impacts and social impacts. Um, so it, it is a massive experiment, a massive experiment. And, you know, typically when you look at the licensing of a drug, there is a risk-benefit decision that regulators make. And that risk-benefit decision is, is made more complex by the fact that the, the currency of benefit and the currency of risk whether you're looking at quality of life or lives saved, um, and then the risks in terms of side effects, the nature of those side effects, you know, how it impacts productivity and quality of life. They're not the same, but you can kind of make judgments um, a little bit as if you were looking at a, um, a balance, a weighing machine. With this, it's like having a multi-dimensional weighing machine. Um, you know, you can put your finger up and get a gut feeling over it. But when you look at the fact that we um, already the suggestions from most of the economic 
analysts are suggesting a 15 to 20% um, drop in GDP globally as a result of this. Those consequences could be absolutely huge. So, yes, the social distancing um, is, is certainly the biggest thing that, um, that, that change that has occurred. Um, I guess I could also say I've never washed my hands so long, um, so many times. I've never washed my hands so many times and for so long. Yes. Um, and thank God I use friendly washing soaps because um, just a, a little aside, um, most people never noticed when so-called soap got converted to detergent. Let's remember what soap is. You know, fatty acid and glycerol is your classic, you know, soap. And, and of course, the stuff that comes out of most of these, um, you know, um, uh, pump action dispensers now is actually a detergent. And that detergent does strip um, oils from the skin um, in a way that soaps don't. And you can find that your skin becomes very, very dry. And we know from the history of MRSA and the use of um, uh, alcohol um, as a disinfection agent that actually it increased the amount of MRSA transmission because people's hands became so dry that, that, that ba the bacteria would, would be caught in the cracks in our hands. So we need to be careful about that and need to kind of look after our skins as well. And our hands are key players in this entire pandemic. Absolutely, especially because people are touching surfaces, whether they're at a grocery store, I say grocery store, supermarket, or things like that. So, yeah, hugely, hugely important. And I can imagine it's not something which is on the forefront of that of people's minds. It's certainly not on mine. Um, but I'm lucky. I think my hands are in good, pretty good nick. Great, great. <laughs> you, 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 you have youth on your side, you see. Yeah, <laughs> and good soap. Um, yes, that's right. <laughs> So, and last but not least, Rob, can you please provide the listeners with three tips, and I know you've provided many already, to help um, them improve their health and well-being from today? Let, let, let's look at sleep, as, as sleep is so critical here, um, and, and really, really focusing in. I mean, because people are so worried about this pandemic, they are glued to their devices, um, and please, reduce the use of it just consider two or three times a day that you check out what the latest um um news is on on it you know which next politician after our um our prime minister who uh, we all got the news today that he is now uh coronavirus positive yeah. um so um but but yes try and limit the your amount of exposure because your sleep quality your stress response. Remember that if you look at your autonomic nervous system, um, pushing yourself into sympathetic fight and flight mode is one of the worst things you can do for immune system. So take a chill pill, um, you know, that is about relaxing um, and, and try and really see some of the positives. There's been amazing things that are happening in terms of people's cooperations and kindness and compassion. Um, think of the positive things that are happening. It's also a chance for us to reflect. I mean, let's let's recall that, um, you know, in all of the concerns um, that Greta Thunberg and others put forward about the climate emergency, most people did very little. They signed a few petitions and um, they carried on probably with a very, very little change in their overall carbon footprint. We now see... Um, a health emergency, and the world has almost stopped. Um, it's an indication of the essential selfishness of our species. Um, and, and my um, request to people is to perhaps use this time to reflect a little about what we're doing to this planet, understanding the role that we have. Viruses, I mean, there are some question marks exactly over how this virus came to be, but on the whole, the concept of a zoonotic virus jumping across into the human species is something that has happened many times before. We know the history is that we do adapt fairly quickly to it. Our immune system does get used to it and doesn't over-respond in the same way that it, that it is now. So um, take time to reflect and um, 
you know, we've heard many times different commentators saying the world will never be the same again. But let's maybe not see this from a negative context, but see it from a positive context and understand when we get back to normal living and normal work, that we do things differently, we do things better with more compassion and more understanding of our role um, and our interaction with nature around us on which we're entirely dependent. Fantastic. I think that last point really resonated with me as well. I'm sure it's resonated with everyone else. Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking your time out of your extremely busy day to, to speak with me. Just before you go, uh, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and the exciting projects that you have coming up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find us um, on Alliance for Natural Health International. Our website is ANH for Alliance for Natural Health, ANHinternational.org, ANHinternational.org. You can sign up for free weekly newsletters. You can go onto our website. We Every week we put it pretty in-depth um, articles out um, to keep people informed. We are about campaigns, activism, research, and education. And anyone who's understood how the first letters of, of those uh, three, those four areas come together uh, as an acronym, it's about care. And um, what we're really engaged with is, is care around the principle of natural and sustainable healthcare. Um, we, we believe that we need to see a sea change in how people go about um, uh, looking after themselves. And until we understand that we are part of nature and nature is part of us, we really won't have a solution. So um, please go to our website. We have um, social media streams on, on Facebook and Twitter. I have to say um, Facebook, um, has so many different algorithms now that that um, um, throttle down communications, particularly around COVID-19, when they are talking about immunity or um, natural health, that we are struggling a little bit with those channels. But certainly our website is a portal for loads of information. Okay, fantastic. And I'll link to everything that you've just described in the show notes. Rob, again, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and I do really hope that we can do this again soon. Absolutely, Ben, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support. <laughs>